Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good morning, everyone. It is Saturday, January the 29th, 2022. It is currently 9.21 a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church located right here in Ovalo, Texas. And welcome to the last day of our Bible study exercise for this week. I, I know, I, I, I should I say it's the last day? I, there's a part of me that says I, I probably shouldn't say that, but in theory, today is the last day of this week's Bible study, and then tomorrow we will introduce a new Bible study exercise for the new week. Now, there is a possibility. Well, actually, there's, there's probably... Maybe a slight possibility that tomorrow morning during the Sunday school hour, I may, I may address some of this possibly. Um, I, I, I've tried to do that, like use the Sunday school hour on that Sunday to kind of conclude that previous week's Bible study, but I don't know if that's what I'm going to do tomorrow as of yet. I'm still trying to figure out my approach. We have a lot to do tomorrow, um, for the, for the worship hour that may require me to use the Sunday school hour and the worship hour, even to try to, to make it through everything that we need to try to cover. So we have a lot to do tomorrow, but we're here today on this Saturday, which is typically the last day for our Bible study exercise. If you're brand new, you don't have any clue what's going on. Let me explain. Uh, the Bible study exercise is where we dedicate one week to one passage of scripture and we dig in and we study and we study. We have a Bible study curriculum that is free. If you would like to have access to that, just simply email me, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. And I'll send you the link absolutely free. We have a Bible memory app that you can uh, use as well. You just go to Bible, look for Bible memory app in your app store of choice. Once you have it downloaded, go to groups, do a search for Theology Central, join the group, and then you can memorize scripture with us. And obviously, whatever passage of scripture we're studying for that week, we give you scripture that you can memorize. We also have the Discord channel. Uh, download the Discord app and uh, email me and I'll send you a link and you can join the Theology Central Discord channel so that you can chat and discuss whatever we are studying for that week, uh, as well as many other theological issues as well. So there's lots of resources available to you, but we dedicate one week to really digging into the scripture. And the goal here is for me, not just to simply turn on the microphone each day to teach you, but it's a Bible study exercise. I'm trying to get you actually studying the Bible for yourself. I'm trying to get you to get up and do some biblical exercise of study, of research, of, of meditation, of discussion, of thinking, so that uh, hopefully you can grow in your understanding of the Word of God and then grow spiritually as a result, and you will be equipped and not tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. We're really trying to accomplish many things with this series of podcast episodes. But today, we we, we, we should be at the end, but as you're going to, to discover here in just a minute, have we reached the end or have we really reached a new beginning, right? I mean, I feel like, we're, well, it said, the calendar says it's Saturday, so we should be at the end, but everything feels like I think we're just about to begin a, a new kind of study. This week has all, all, this entire week has been about Genesis chapter 39 
And really, we've used Genesis 39 to talk about the topic of temptation. Genesis 39 is a very straightforward historical narrative. Everyone knows the story. It records the story of Joseph being tempted and how he he takes off and just runs and and thousands, millions of sermons have been preached on Genesis 39, where they typically focus on temptation. We've really dug into the subject. I've asked some very important questions. I've tried to get you to think about it. But as we kind of started to reach the end of the week, I had been waiting for someone who's been a part of the Bible study exercise this week to say, well, 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 what about 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13? I mean, can we talk about temptation and not mention 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13? And I, I was hoping someone would say, so what do you think about this? Or how do we understand this? Or does this seem to imply this? I was hoping for something. And you know, I guess it was strange to me that no one emailed me, no one brought it up, but I, I decided to introduce this verse to this subject, to this discussion, all right? So here, so I'm just going to ask some very basic questions once again. When it comes to the subject of temptation, obviously we're dealing, first we gave a very important definition. I believe temptation is any enticement to have you depart, move away, go against God's standards in thought, in word, in action, or in attitude, any enticement to move you away, to, to, to try to convince you to go against God's standard in thought, in word, in action, or in attitude. That's kind of the definition we established. I think, it, I think it's a, a good definition, and I think it's consistent with what you're going to find in many dictionaries and many things you, look, uh, you, you will look up. I told everyone to do some work on Greek and Hebrew words about temptation, uh, I, I think I've got a few people who sent me their, their homework. If you, even if you don't send me your homework, I hope you did a little digging and a little work. No one obviously discovered something that they were like, I don't understand this or this is confusing. No one uh, seemed to have any problems with that. So I haven't spent much time this week on that, but hopefully you have done your work. But uh, so, so I think our definition of, I think the definition I'm giving you for temptation is somewhat consistent. But when you start talking about temptation, you have to establish something. And this is so important. As a Christian, we have to understand that we still have a sinful nature. We still have a sinful nature. Therefore, we will struggle with sin our entire Christian life. And let me say this. You will sin your entire Christian life. You will continue to sin either in thought, in word, in action, or in attitude over and over and over and over. You cannot be perfect. You cannot stop sinning. Now, that, that's just, to me, a very absolutely important concept. Now, what Christians tend to do, what churches tend to do, is they preach and sell Christianity as if everything I just said isn't true. However, after they say everything that seems to imply everything I just said isn't true, they'll then throw in like one comment to go, well, however, but almost like read the small print. But typically, it'll be preached like this in church. You are a Christian. You now have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you. 
And because you have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you, you can resist sin. You can stand against it. You've been set free from the power of sin. You are more than a conqueror. You can do all things through Christ. You can stand against it. You can fight. You can be victorious. You can overcome. You are a new creature in Christ. Therefore, old thi- all everything that is old has passed away and everything has become new. And they say that in regards to your practical standing, not your positional standing. When you hear all of that, you're okay. So I have the power of God inside of me. I can overcome. I can resist sin. I'm more than a conqueror. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I'm a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. Okay, I can be sinless. And then somewhere they'll say, however, after after they tell you all of those things, after you start thinking, yes, I can do this, then they will typically throw in almost just like a small little uh, you know, clause. It's almost like a disclaimer. However, well, you can't be perfect. However, you can't be sinless. Well, wait a minute. You just said that I'm a new creature. Old things are passed away. Everything has become new. Is that talking about my practical standing? Because if it is, that would seem to indicate I no longer have a sinful nature. If I have the power of God living inside of me, shouldn't that power be sufficient for me to stop sinning? Right? If I'm a, if I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me, wouldn't that include stop sinning? If I'm more than a conqueror, doesn't it mean I can conquer sin perfectly? All of that would seem to imply that, but then there'll be, look, but, 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 but you're, you're still going to sin. You're, you're still going to sin. You're still going to sin. So which is it? It's this very schizophrenic thing that just drives me crazy about Christianity that it's sold like, all of this is possible, and then, well, you're not going to be perfect. And then you look at 2,000 years of church history, and what do we see? We see sin and sin and sin and sin and the life of believers. We see moral failure, whether it's a big scandalous one, or it's done in private, or it's just those those socially acceptable sins that are that are socially acceptable within the body of Christ. In other words, people don't really spend too much time worrying about those sins as long as I stay away from the big ones. But sin is happening all over the place. Christian marriages are falling apart. Families are being broken up. There's adultery. There's fornication. There's pornography. There's lying. There's gossip. There's slander. There's hypocrisy. There's spiritual pride. I mean, there's anger. There's unforgiveness. There's bitterness. I mean, it's just all of these things are present. And people say, well, obviously, because we're sinners. Right. I I agree. We're sinners. But you just told me that you're more than a conqueror. You have the power of God inside of you. You've been set free from the power of sin. You're a new creature. Old things are passed away. Everything has become new. But then you're like, however, we're still sinners. It is extremely confusing and almost schizophrenic at time. At times, not just at time, at times. And I, I, I think one thing we have to understand is the distinction between our position and our practical existence. And let me state this again. My, my position before God is I am perfectly holy. I am more than a conqueror. I am a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. All of that is true in my position because in my position before God, I stand covered in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. I stand 
in his perfect, his perfect obedience, passive and active obedience is imputed to my account. Before God, I am perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. I am sinless. I am a new creature. The old is completely gone. In my position, in my practice, in my practical existence, my everyday life, I am still living in a body that has flesh. I have a corrupt nature. I'm still a sinner. I have desires and thoughts that constantly goes against the ways of God and the things of God. And I'm constantly struggling and fighting with sin. And I'm sinning in some way, shape, or form on a continual basis. And I can demonstrate that. The Bible says, here's God's standard. Be ye holy as I am holy. And practice, I am never as holy as God. Never. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I fall short of that standard in thought, in word, in action, and in attitude. And my position, I am as holy as God is holy because the perfect holiness of Christ has been imputed to my account. You're to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. I, I have never loved God with all of my heart, with all of my mind, with all of my body, with all of my soul. I fall short continually like that. But Jesus Christ loved the Father perfectly. There's perfect love between the Son and the Father, and that is imputed to me. So I stand, I, ha- I have loved God perfectly in Christ. I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. Christ demonstrated a perfect love for others, and that is imputed to my account. So in my position, I fulfill all of that. Or, or I should say that. In my position, all of that has been fulfilled for me, and it's accredited to my account. So I stand there as if I have fulfilled all of that. In my pra- That's in my position. In my practice, I haven't loved others I haven't loved God. I'm not holy. And I could just go on and on and on. So in my position, it's all true. In my practice, I fall short. So the goal of the Christian life or the or the kind of the thing you constantly try to do in your Christian life is you try to live out in practice what is true positionally. However, you will never do it perfectly. That's why you have to constantly rely on the gospel and your position. You'll never taste the sweetness of the gospel until you choke on the reality of your sin. We have to see the reality of our sin and then it'll make us understand that, man, without the gospel, I'm in trouble. But we preach all of these things that I think are really true about our position as if they're true in practice. Then Christian after Christian finds themselves sinning, 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 falling short, falling short, or They have to start covering themselves in some robe of self-righteousness so that they can pretend that all of these things are true when in reality they are not, which then they're, they're living in denial. And for many, 10, 15 years of being a Christian, you start becoming disillusioned, you become discouraged, you become depressed, you become frustrated, you start deconstructing, thinking that this is all a lie, this is all garbage because it doesn't work. It doesn't work because we've been sold a a particular way of thinking. I really want to, I know that's repeating a lot of what we've already talked about, but I want you to just understand that. Now, the reason I mention all of that is because someone somewhere will go, but, but the Bible says 
There hath no temptation taken you, but what, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, that seems to imply, that seems to imply that whatever temptation I face, God is sovereignly controlling that temptation so that I will never be tempted beyond something that I cannot resist, that I have the ability to resist it, and that with every temptation, God gives me a way of escape, which would imply that none of us have to sin and that all of us can stop sinning because there is no temptation that I cannot withstand. And that with everyone, there is a way to escape. That's how that is typically viewed. And you can understand why, because that's what it seems to say. So is that what it says? How do we understand it? So for the next 30 minutes, 35 minutes, 40 minutes, we are going to work on 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Now, what I was going to do is I was just going to pick a random sermon on 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And I was just going to upload it and we were just going to review, just, just pick a random sermon and just see how a typical church just at, picked at random handles the subject. So I went to the Edify Christian Podcast app. I started looking and I found the, the very first one that popped up. I'm like, okay. And so I, I went to that church's website and then you can't find a way to download their sermons. And it's like, oh, so I started getting frustrated with that because I don't understand why churches... That, if you're going to put your sermons online, why don't you put them online in a way that, for one, people can actually find what they're looking for, and two, they can actually download your messages. Like, it's just insane. You'll go from church website to church website, and you're like, what is this? Like, how do I even download this? What I can't, I can't find anything. It's like, what is even the point of, of putting your messages online other than just to say, oh, look, our messages are online? So that, that, so that started frustrating me, but, but I kept looking and then something funny happened. All right. So I'm going, I went to the Edify Christian podcast app. I typed in first Corinthians 10, 13. I clicked on episodes. And so I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm looking, I'm like, okay, first Corinthians 10, one through 13, Veritas church. Okay. I looked for that. I couldn't find, find a way to download it. First Corinthians 10, eight through 13, a Calvary Chapel, and I'm like, okay. So I was going to look for that one, but I was already frustrated because I couldn't find the other. And then I kept looking down, and then I saw question and answer on 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I'm like, oh, that looks interesting. And I'm like, wait, that's that's from a podcast called Theology Central. I'm like, wait, there's there's another podcast called Theology Central? So I clicked on it, and I heard— Good afternoon, everyone. It is— Wednesday, January the 20th, 2021. It is currently 3.30 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Victory Baptist Church. (laughs) And I'm like, wait a minute, that's me. So uh, literally, just a little over a year ago, I was sitting in this exact same building talking about 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and I completely forgot. Now you say, how could you forget? Because, well... (laughs) I, I did almost a thousand episodes last year. So, so I mean, you got you to gotta cut me a little slack. But not only that, I don't try to ever go back and rely on anything I've done in the past when I'm getting ready to cover something in the present. And the reason I don't do that is maybe a year ago, I got my, my view on 1 Corinthians 10, 13 was completely wrong. 
So why would I go back and take anything that I have said in the past on the subject to speak of it in the present? Now, when I'm going to speak of it in the present, I have to re-look at it, re-examine it, and re-study it. But question and answer on 1 Corinthians 10, 13. (laughs) One year ago, in this very building, we were discussing it. We were talking about it. If you would like to go back and listen to that one, you can find it. You can go to theologycentral.net, and the search bar there will be very easy to find. That's probably the easiest way to find it. Um, There's probably... You probably can just do a Google search for 1 Corinthians 10, 13, um, Theology Central, and you may be able to find it that way as well. But we, we definitely discussed it. And you can see why. You can see why this subject comes up frequently because it seems to imply you can stop sinning. You don't have to sin. God knows exactly what you can resist and what you can't resist. He's only gonna give you a temptation. He, now, <laughs> I I could ask a million questions right there, right? Wait a minute. So God controls which temptations come to me and which temptations don't. He knows which ones I can resist and which ones I can't resist. But why would he bring any temptation? Why would he allow any? Why would he just stop all temptation? That, That would be a reasonable question, right? And if I do sin, he knew that I was going to sin. So if he brought that temptation, knowing that I was going to sin, Why would he bring a temptation or allow a temptation in which he knew I was going to sin? Well, but he knew that I didn't have to sin, but he knew that I was going to sin. So why would he just keep that temptation because he wouldn't want me to sin? Like there's a million questions. There's a million questions. Any good Bible student should just be a little bit perplexed going, what in the world? So I I decided I gave up on pulling (laughs) sermons for us to listen to, because right now uh, I, I just got frustrated trying to find these church these churches. Like, here's our sermon, but well, you can't download it. Yeah, it's it's impossible to find, and and many of them were years and years old. Uh, on top of that, so here's what we're going to do: we're just going to do a little work on First Corinthians ten thirteen, and we're just going to first just look at what many commentaries have to say on this. I think that'll be fun. We'll at least get a lot of the. Uh, that's one of the assignments I gave you, so I'm just going to help you out. And we're just going to look at a lot of commentaries. And the first one, the only reason it's first is just because, well, it's sitting right here next to me. I have John MacArthur's sermon on first, or sermon, John MacArthur's commentary. Well, basically his commentary is just his sermons, but his commentary on 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So let's do this. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 10. First, let's read the 12 verses preceding verse 13, all right? Because I think that, I think that gives us context. First Corinthians 10, verse one. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, immediately we realize, okay, Paul writing to the church at Corinth is going to remind them of things in the past. He's going to be borrowing from events in the Old Testament in order to try to challenge them and teach them about their present situation. I think I think that's fair to say, right? Because he says, moreover, brethren, right? That's a, he refers to the, the people at Corinth as brethren, as believers. And he doesn't want them to be ignorant. He, he doesn't want them to forget the past. So he, he, he mentions our fathers, uh, 
that, uh, that were under the cloud and all uh, passed through the sea. They were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat that same spiritual meat. And they did all drink that same spiritual drink. They drank of the, uh, of the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So he's going to go, he's reminding them of what happened to Israel when they were in the wilderness. They had many blessings. They had, they had provision. They had blessing. Christ was with them. They had, they had, they had provision. They had presence because Christ was with them. They had blessing. They had all of these things, but yet they were overthrown in the wilderness. Uh, and because God was not well pleased. So why were they overthrown? What happened? Verse six. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So we should remember what happened to Israel so that we don't find ourselves lusting for evil things, lusting for things which God tells us we should not lust after. They are our example. Okay, that, that makes sense. Verse seven, neither be ye idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and 20,000. So we have idolatry. Now when it says fornication there, is that a reference to a sexual sin? What, what kind of fornication is that referencing? I, again, Bible study exercise. I want you to start thinking about some of these. Verse nine, neither let us tempt Christ have some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. So there is idolatry. There's some kind of fornication they committed. What kind of fornication is it referring to? And they tempted Christ. Okay, how did they tempt Christ? How did they tempt God? Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. So we have, uh, we have idolatry. We have fornication. We have tempting God and we have murmuring. Verse 11. Now, all these things happened unto them for end samples that they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Once again, it's reminded they are, these were written as an example, as, as, as to remind us, to show us, don't do those things. So let's go through them again. Don't be an idolater. Fornication, whatever kind of fornication that's referring to. They're referring to sexual sin or, or, or a spiritual kind of fornication. We would have to figure that out. Uh, let us, don't tempt God and do not murmur. These are very specific sins that are outlined and the text is telling us they're there to be an example to us. So this is simple, very straightforward. The only thing that we would have to spend some time working on is the fornication mentioned there. Here in a minute, I'm gonna see uh, how MacArthur handles that, all right? Wherefore, then verse 12, wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Now, based off that, based off everything that happened to Israel, 
right? Based off all of everything that happened to Israel, all of the sins they committed and all of the judgments that they experienced. Based off that, then you need to beware, all of us, that don't, for those who think that he can stand, take heed lest he fall. You should be, that example should make you like, wow, if Israel with God's presence, God's provision, God's blessing with them having all of that and they still fell into all of those sins, I need to not be so spiritually arrogant to think I've got it all figured out. I can't do that because the minute I do that, well, I'm going to end up falling into sin. So here is a warning about presuming that you that you can stand. This is a warning against spiritual arrogance, against spiritual pride. This is a warning against saying, me, I will never deny you. I will never fall. Don't think that way. If Israel with all of their, with all of their blessings and all of the, the advantages that was given to them, if they still fell in sin, then, well, what, 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 what's going to happen to you? I mean, they have some serious advantages. They have seen God's power in a way that we can't even comprehend. I mean, they, they, they were so much going for them and yet they fell into sin. With all of their advantages, they fell into sin. So you don't sit there thinking, well, I would never be like Israel. I would never do, because the minute you start thinking that way, you're going to fall. Now, with all of that, then we're told, there hath no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. Hey, don't think that you can't fall. You can. And then we go right into this discussion in verse 13 in regards to temptation. There's the context. Now, I'm going to look here because now I am curious. Um. Okay. The se- okay. So the 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 second sin that's mentioned here, the second major sin was alluded to in the previous verse, play, but it is treated especially in verse eight. Nor let us act immorally or or, or fornication, as some of them did, and twenty three thousand fell in one day. The incident to which Paul refers is recorded in Numbers. Uh, while in the wilderness, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to their sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. 24,000 Israelites were slain because of that orgy. The difference in number, and then it talks about a difference in number. So they say that their idolatry led them basically to engage in sexual immorality. All right? And then they were judged. So, so we can go through each one of those sins. Now, with all of that, here we go. This is very, uh, I think they're very interesting here. So, and this is how MacArthur uh, explains it. This is page 227 of his commentary. Let, let's see how he handles this. Handles this. So by this time, in other words, by the time you get down to verse 13, the Corinthians were no doubt wondering how, how they could possibly avoid all the pitfalls Paul has just described and illustrated. In other words, like, look, at okay, if, if Israel fell in all of those ways, how can we avo- avoid those pitfalls? How can we avoid that kind of sin? 
And I think that that's a fair way of reading it. Hey, guys, this is your example. Now, don't think you, you can don't think that you're you can't fall. Don't think that way because you can. All right. Well, then the question, well, well how can I avoid this? How can I not fall? All right. Uh, how do we keep from falling into idolatry in our hearts? How can we live righteous lives when the society around us is so wicked? How can we avoid trying the Lord? And how can we keep from grumbling? In other words, how can we keep from all of the things that we just listed in 1 Corinthians 10 um, mentioned before you get to verse 13? I think that's a fair way of reading it. Paul's answer is that a Christian should recognize that victory is always available. Because a believer can never get into temptation that he cannot get out of. Now, stop right here. Now, I, there's, this is where you have to ask a question. Okay, so victory is always available, and I can never get myself into a temptation that I cannot get out of. So here comes the question. Then why, for 2,000 years, Christians continually sin over and over and over and over and over and over again. Because you're seeming, you're seeming to imply that, hey, you can stop sinning. The victory is right there. And there's no temptation that you can get yourself into that you can't get out of. So you can stop sinning. So does that mean Christians can be perfect? And if you say, no, 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 you can't be perfect. Well, then why? <laughs> you see the contradiction? L let's see what how MacArthur handles this. Here we go. Paul's answer is that a Christian should recognize that victory is always available because a believer can never get into temptation that he cannot get out of. For one thing, Paul explains, no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. The basic meaning of temptation is simply to test or prove and has no negative connotation. According to MacArthur, the word temptation, there's not a negative con connotation. It just means to test or to prove. That, that's, that's interesting. Whether it becomes a proof of righteousness or an indict inducement to evil depends on our response. So according to them, temptation, um, it, uh, it may become a proof of your righteousness. So, so whatever, whatever the temptation is, there's no connotation whether it's good or bad. It's just here's a temptation, and how you respond will either show you it will prove your righteousness or it will be an inducement of evil, and that all depends on your response. That temptation almost, he's almost viewing that temptation is just neutral. I, I don't know if it's always neutral. I do agree that, some, that anything we face can either demonstrate our righteous response or it can show us our failure to respond accurately. I, I, I do see it that way, but temptation I think is more typically defined as an enticement to move away from God's standard, but okay. If we resist it, if we resist it in God's power, it is a test that proves our faithfulness. Now, here we go. Implying that whatever temptation you face, you can resist it in God's power. Now, if God's power is available for me to resist temptation, 
then you would have to argue that God's power should be sufficient to make all Christians sinless. So the idea would be, well, the power is there for you to be sinless, but you just don't want to be sinless. Therefore, you don't use the power because if you would simply use the power, you could stop sinning. Now, if we go with that as a practical truth, just think how we would handle church discipline. Church discipline would be much more quicker. Hey, look, there was no excuse for you to sin. There was no excuse. You had the power. You refused. So this demonstrates not only that you fell into sin, you wanted to sin because you didn't use the way of escape. Like you should, you could be even harsher on the people in the church. You can be perfect. God's power is available to you. Victory is right there. There is no excuse for you to sin. You see, there's, there's, there's real implications from these statements. We have to consider this, all right? If we do not resist, it becomes a solicitation to sin. The Bible uses the term in both ways, and I believe that Paul has both meanings in mind here. So I guess what he's saying is that a temptation can either just prove to be a test or a trial that will prove that you're faithful if you resist in God's power, or it can be an enticement to sin if you don't resist in God's power. All right, let's turn the page. Page 228. When Jesus, now here, now we're going to go, all right, all right, here we go. When Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, it is clear that both God and Satan participated in the testing. God intended the test to prove his son's righteousness, but Satan intended it to induce Jesus to misuse his divine power and give his allegiance to Satan. So in other words, that in every temptation, God is trying to use the temptation, I guess, to prove your righteousness and Satan or temptation itself is simply trying to get you to sin. Right? Now, again, but God is all-knowing, right? He knows what's going to happen. So if he knows I'm going to sin, why would he allow the sin to occur? Why, would he, why wouldn't he just stop that temptation? Well, they're, they're, they're going to fail in that temptation. In other words, hey, I know if I lead Israel into the wilderness, I know they're going to grumble. I know these things are going to, I know that thousands of people are going to die. So why? I'm just going to, why do that? Just I'm just going to make sure they've got everything they need and get them right to the promised land because I don't want any of this to happen. Why? Like, why? I know they're going to send out spies and when they get that report, I'm just going to, I'm just going to tell them because I mean, he was communicating directly with, with the leaders, right? I'm just going to tell them, don't send out spies, just go directly in. I mean, he, he, he had intervened in, in powerful ways, right? I mean, come on. I mean, you're dealing in the book of Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. God intervenes in absolutely powerful ways, supernatural ways, parting the Red Sea, the plagues. He, 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 he's appearing in the Shekinah glory. He's talking to Moses, theoretically, in a sense, face to face. Like, literally, he can intervene. But he leads them into a place knowing exactly they're going to fall and that people are going to die and that people are going to wander around now for 40 years dying. He knows what's going to happen. So if God, if God is involved in the, in the temptation process, well, then, well, they're going to fall. They're going to die. So why would he not just intervene? See, these are, these are just, I know you're not supposed to ask these questions, but if we don't ask these questions, other people will. 
So he mentions, so God was involved in the temptation of Jesus and so was Satan. Uh, Then he mentions Job here. Um, Job was tested in much the same way. God allowed Job to be afflicted in order to prove his servant was an upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Satan's purpose was the opposite, to prove that Job was faithful only because of the blessings and prosperity uh, the Lord had given him, that if these things were taken away, Job would surely curse thee to thy face. Now, everyone just, when I read that, I just have a hard time even reading it. Like, so, so God is like, hey, I'm going to allow you to be tempted so that I can prove how faithful you are. But this, this, te- this testing, this tempting is going to result in the death of your family members. <laughs> like, that just seems so, yeah, I mean, there, there's, yeah, I think we can all agree there's some struggles that we should have there. And it's okay to have those struggles. God's tests are never a solicitation to evil. And James strongly corrects those who suggest such a thing. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So, so when God is involved, it's not trying to get you to do evil, But again, I would have to at least bring up, but he knows what's going to happen. He knows the outcome. He knows the outcome. But all right. By evil is the key to the difference between the two types of temptation. In the wilderness, God tested Jesus by righteousness, wherein Satan tested him by evil. A temptation becomes an inducement to evil only when a person is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. James 1, 14 through 15. So he's just trying to really show the difference that temptation can just be a test to prove how righteous you are, or it can be a temptation that entices you to evil, that somehow it's it's neutral. All right. Okay. Uh, we, we, could, we, could, we could have a discussion there, but that's all right. Um, now, he's got a lot more here, but I'm just going to jump here. He, he talks about common demand. Uh, in Greek, it simply means that where which uh, that which is human, characteristic or of belonging to mankind. In other words, Paul says there is no such thing as a superhuman or supernatural temptation. Temptations are human experiences. The term also carries the idea of usual or typical or indicated by common. So in other words, all, temptation is something that's just common to every human being who will ever live. All right, that I think we can all agree with that. We don't need a lot to spend a lot of time with that. Now, let's go to page 229. Not only are temptations common to men, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able No believer can claim that he was overwhelmed by temptation or that the devil made me do it. No one, not even Satan, can make us sin. He cannot even make an unbeliever sin. No temptation is inherently stronger than our spiritual resources. People sin because they willingly sin. So according to MacArthur, you don't have to sin. You can stop sinning. That is a, 
That is, that is a crazy concept in the sense that you're just telling everyone, look, you can stop. You can stop. You can, you don't have to sin. You don't have to sin. You basically have the power and the ability to stop sinning. And it seems to imply, well, I, I know he didn't mean it that way, but the, he, he goes on to say, uh, Satan, uh, can, uh, let's see, no, no one, not even Satan can make you sin. He cannot even make an unbeliever sin. So Satan can't even make an unbeliever sin. So, so I guess, are you saying, and now this gets really, now I know it does, I know MacArthur would, is not saying this. I know he's not saying this, but he seemingly, it almost implies that a, even a unbeliever can stop sinning. Well, that would, that would be Pelagianism. That would be, that would be semi-Pelagianism. No, it'd be, that'd be full-blown Pelagianism. That, hey, that even a lost person can just say, I'm not going to sin. But they're dead in their trespasses and sin. They're slaves to sin. So I know MacArthur didn't mean it that way. I don't know why he would say, a Satan, a Satan can't even make an unbeliever sin. Why, why couldn't Satan make an unbeliever sin? Why couldn't he? They're the children of the devil. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They're completely in bondage. And, and that, so I, that is just a weird. I'm going to read that again. No believer can claim that he was overwhelmed by temptation or that the devil made me do it. No one, not even Satan can make a sin. He cannot even make an unbeliever sin. That, that, that is problematic theologically to me. That is problematic. But, but what about the, so, so I, I completely reject his unbeliever statement, but the believer, can, as a believer, do you have the complete power to stop sinning? Yes or no? Because if you say you can stop sinning, then that means you can be perfect. And if you believe you can be perfect, I think you're going to have to reduce the concept of sin to just, to merely action and then you're going to have to say that only these actions are sinful and they're going to be really big things and you're going to really minimize what sin is. Let's continue. I mean, that's just, that's just crazy. Um, no temptation is inherently stronger than our spiritual resources. People sin because they willingly sin. You have the spiritual resources to stop sinning. And if you sin, it's because you willingly chose to sin because technically you don't have to. Wow, I mean, that's crazy. The Christian, however, has his heavenly father's help in resisting temptation. So when it comes to temptation, you have God's help. So you have believers, you have unbelievers. Unbelievers don't have God's help. We literally have God's help. God is faithful, MacArthur goes on to say. He, is, he remains true to his own. From six troubles, he will deliver you. Even in seven, evil will not touch you. Job 5.19. I don't like a random quote from Job where their speeches are being given. So I, I, that I, yeah, I don't, I don't like that at all because you got the speeches being given in Job. And so is everything being said by the people in those speeches uh, 100% true? So yeah, I have problems there. Okay. When our faithfulness is tested, we have God's own faithfulness as our resource. We can be absolutely certain that he will never allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able. That is, God's response 
when we pray, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He will not let us experience any test we are not able to meet. So there's literally absolutely no temptation you can face that you do not have the ability to resist. Every enticement to sin, you can resist. Everyone. That means there should not be any problems in a Christian marriage because both partners literally have the ability to always respond correctly, to always respond godly. There should never be a problem with a Christian parent in raising their kid. They should always do everything perfectly because no matter what your kid does, no matter what a, no matter how people treat you, no matter if people lie about you, persecute you, you should always respond with love, forgiveness, turning the other cheek because there is no temptation that you can encounter that you don't have the ability to resist. So there should be perfection in the Christian church. There should be perfection in the Christian home. There should be perfection wherever a Christian works in the workplace. There should just be perfection. You say, well, he's not saying there will be perfection. He's clearly saying that it's a bit, it's a bit available and that it's possible. Uh, let's put it that way. And if it's possible, then shouldn't that be the reality? All right. Uh, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked them twice whom they had come for, uh, come for, who was designated uh, on their arrest order. After they answered for the second time, Jesus, the Nazarene, he said, if therefore you seek me, uh, let these go their way. John explains that Jesus prevented the disciples from being arrested with him in order that the word might be fulfilled when he spoke of those whom thou hast given me, I lost not one. The disciples were not yet ready for such a test. Had they been arrested, they would have been devastated and Jesus would have uh, would not permit it. So this seems to be indicating that, hey, the reason the disciples weren't arrested is they couldn't handle it. So that means any temptation, no temptation will ever come to you that you can't handle. So every temptation you face, if you fall, you, you, you can stop sinning. Okay. That, the disciples were not yet ready for such a test. Had they been arrested, they would have been devastated and Jesus would not permit it. At best, we have known from church history, most of those 11 disciples died a martyr's death. The other, John, was exiled for life on the island of Patmos. All of them went through persecution, imprisonment, and countless hardships for the sake of the gospel, but they did not go through those things until they were ready to handle them. But with temptation, we'll provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. The phrase, the way, is formed by the uh, definite article and a singular noun. In other words, there is only one way, the way of escape from every temptation, no matter what it is, is the same way. It is through whether we have a test by God to prove our righteousness or a test by Satan to induce us to sin. There's only one way we can pass the test. We escape temptation, not by getting out of it, but by passing through it. God does not take us out. He sees us through by making us able to endure it. Well, wait a minute. You just said in the previous paragraph, the way Jesus protected the disciples was keeping him from it. 
He didn't see them through it. He prevented them from ever going into it. But I, but okay, I, I guess you could kind of make a, a, an argument here. So, um, so whether it's a test by God to prove your righteousness or a test by Satan to induce to sin, there's only one way we can ex- we can pass the test. We escape temptation not by getting out of it, but by passing through it. God does not take us out. He sees us through by making us able to endure it. God literally makes you able to endure it. God's own spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. It was the father's will that the the son be there. And Jesus did not leave until all three temptations were over. He met the temptations head on. He escaped the temptations by enduring them in his father's power. God provides three ways for us to endure temptation. Prayer, trust, and focusing on him. So whenever you face temptation, all you got to do is pray, trust, and focus on Christ, and you too can endure whatever temptation you will encounter. Meaning, well, you can be perfect. All right? And then I'm going to read the last paragraph here, because he goes through each one of those, uh, prayer, trust, and focusing on Christ. Then the last paragraph says this. And John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, Christian and hopeful uh, and hopeful fall asleep in a field belonging to the to giant despair. The giant finds them and takes them into the doubting castle. When he puts them in a dark and stinking dungeon without food or water, on his wife's advice, the giant first beats them mercilessly, then suggests they commit suicide. After the giant leaves, the two companions discuss what they should do. Finally, Christian remembers the key in his pocket. I have a key in my bosom called promise. That will, I am persuaded, open any lock in the doubting castle. Sure enough, it opened all the doors in the castle and even the gate. Then they went on and came to the king's highway again. MacArthur doesn't address one problem there, one issue. He just says, hey, basically you've got the key to unlock any door. Any temptation, you've got the key to open the door and go through it. Here, the door, in a sense, is the temptation. You've got the key. You can just open the door and walk right through it and and be victorious because you've got God's assistance. You've got God's power. You've got the key. All you have to do is pray. All you've got to do is trust. And all you've got to do is focus on Christ and you can overcome any temptation. Therefore, there should never be church splits. There should never be any problems. Christianity should be the epitome of spiritual moral perfection. But it's not. So that, that, that MacArthur just says, this is the way it should be. He doesn't bother to explain why it's not. I, I, well, I guess in a way he does. According to him, the reason it's not that way is simply because you don't want it to be that way. That you, you sin because you want to sin. So then here would be my question. If the problem is my want to, why isn't God's power able to get rid of my wanting to sin desire, right? I mean, if if the whole thing here, God provides a way of escape, wouldn't the, the first way of escape would be to change my want to so that I want to never sin and I never want to sin? Like if God changes my want to, then wouldn't that be the way of escape? If if the issue is you sin because you want to sin, well, then my want to would be the source of my temptation, right? I want to sin. That's the source of my temptation. 
What's the solution? Well, God is faithful. Well, if God is faithful, then he would remove my want to, or he would change my want to from not wanting to sin to wanting to only be holy and only serve God. But has your want to changed? Now you say, well, it's changed some, but it's not a perfect want to, right? Because you find yourself wanting to do things you know you shouldn't do. In fact, the things you want to do, you don't do. And the things you don't want to do, you do. Wait, Paul. Wait, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians and he wrote Romans 7. How do we reconcile those two things? That raises more questions than it does. Like that's MacArthur. And he, he doesn't provide us any answers because here's the thing. You're not supposed to ask all of these questions. See, we're just supposed to just preach it, give us those three points and then get out of it and get out of church. I don't think it's that simple because you can preach that all day and everybody will be sitting there. They'll write it in their notes. They're like, amen, 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 amen. I can stop it. I can do it. I can do it. And then guess what they're going to find out? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, before they come back to church next Sunday. They're going to sin. They may sin on the way home from church. They're going to sin when they get home. They're going to sin and they're going to fail and they're going to fall short and they're going to fail and they're going to fall short and they're going to fail and they're going to fall short and they're going to fail and they're going to fall short. So what? what's the answer? What? What is a possible answer to this? Well, we're going to have to figure that out next time because we're almost at an hour. But I just want you to hear how MacArthur handles this. And how how and I want you to just think about and you and and for the Bible study exercise, I want you to just do this. I want you to grab a piece of paper and I want you to just write out how you have understood 1 Corinthians 10:13 in your past Christian life. And how is that corresponded with the reality you experience? How have you understood 1 Corinthians 10:13 and how has that corresponded with your actual experience. Like, here's what you've believed. Here's what you've experienced. Did the two match up or was there always some kind of contradiction? All right. So I want you to write down what you have believed and what you have experienced. Then I want you to write down what you have been taught and what you have experienced. In other words, I want you to think of the churches you've gone to, what was taught about 1 Corinthians 10, 13, And then what was actually happening in your life and the life of people in that church? In other words, did the teaching of the church correspond with the reality of the people in the pew? Did it even match the reality of the person standing behind the pulpit? And how did you reconcile those differences? So how did you understand it? How did that correspond to what you experienced? How was it taught to you in the churches you attended? And how did that relate to what was actually happening in those churches? And how did you deal with the, with the apparent contradiction? How did you reconcile it in your mind? Did you even try to reconcile it? I really want to know. Those in the Discord channel, please, 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 please express this to me. Because I want to know just how you handled it. For me, I've always been like, this makes no sense. I'm confused. I, 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 basically what it, I, I'll just tell you, I tried to convince myself. Well, I mean, I mean, I, I, 
I, I don't even, to be honest, I don't even know if I ever found a good way to reconcile. I think I, what I really did is I just tried to almost put out of my mind my sinful, my sinfulness. I tried to just put out of my mind any of my failures. And I tried to just act like, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this. I, 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 yeah, almost like, I don't know. I, I, there was some like almost weird delusion I think I found myself in. And at some point I had to just realize this is not working. Not just because of my own reality, but just because of all the reality around me. I mean, you know, if you've been a pastor for any length of time, you just know you got Christians who don't seem to love God's word. You got Christians who won't study the Bible. You got Christians who don't, who don't seem to care about the things of God. Like you can just look at it from that perspective, just a, an apathy, spiritual apathy, not caring. Christians uh, who, who will gossip about you, slander you, won't be submissive to spiritual authority. I mean, we can go on and on and on and on. Just not even the scandalous things that happen in church, just your normal things that you just witness. What do we do with 1 Corinthians 10, 13? Now, what do we do for the rest of the day? I don't know because I'm here. I may have to do another uh, another study here. There's other things we need to talk about. See, I, I really wish now, see, this, this is why I wish that the, the sanctuary was full because if the sanctuary was full right now with the people of my church and this and, and and I just ended the sermon what I would want to do is almost keep the microphone like up at the pulpit live on the air because then everyone I would, everyone would start talking about it like the people in my church would start talking about it and it would be interesting to hear all of their well I think this and I think this and I think that everyone everyone's got to look I'm going to get all kinds of emails from people who think they've got the solution and and it's always going to be well I mean clearly this is not saying that you're going to be perfect. Yeah, but it's saying that you can be. It's saying that everyone can be. Per- That's the point I want you to realize. I'm not saying MacArthur's saying that there will be perfection, but he just made it very clear that there can be perfection and that even Satan, Satan can't even make an unbeliever sin. Okay, well, that, that, I mean, he, he's, he's taking it far. That every, that he seemingly do imply that everyone sins willingly. That, ev- that, that almost everyone can just will not to sin. I know he does not mean that about the unbeliever. It's just the way he says that in the commentary is, is a little bit problematic. And the biggest problem in the commentary is he doesn't even address the, well, wait a minute. Why is the reality of sin so present in every life? For, 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 for MacArthur's view to work, you almost have to believe in the eradication of the old nature, that it's just completely gone. And now you, you can be, and well, we could talk about MacArthur's kind of views on that. Maybe that explains it. All right, I'm going to stop right there. You can email me newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Um, I've got, I've got a, uh, I think I think in this book I have right here, I have a different book. Um, I think they talk about 1 Corinthians 10, 13. We may come back and just look at what they have to say. We may just spend the next couple of hours working on 1 Corinthians 10, 13. All right, I'm gonna stop right there. You can email me newsif at yahoo.com. All right, everyone have a great day. God bless.